Okay. Ooh. Just before I start, even though the game hadn't finished before you came, who knows the score of the tennis? <laughs> Does anyone know? Tell me. Put your fingers in your ears if you don't want to know. Shout it out. Who won? They're still playing? Oh my goodness. Huh? Tie break in the fifth. Thank you. Thank you. And the cricket. We still losing the cricket? All right. All right. Thank you very much. It's very important that we get that sorted before we move to the other things. And the other thing, guys, just remind me, what time am I going to finish? 10 o'clock. Great. Okay, right. If you want to turn in your Bibles, please, to uh, page 951. It's the book of Zechariah, chapter 4. Who's been reading Zechariah this week? Yeah? Great. Loads of us. Brilliant. Here we go, chapter 4. <coughs> it says this. We're going to read the uh, 1 to 14. This is Zechariah talking, and he's describing a whole series of visions that he's had in the night. And so we kind of come mid-vision. And he says, Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up, like someone awakened from sleep. And he asked me, What do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it, with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my lord, I replied. That's why I asked you the question. So he said to me, that's not in the Bible, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple, and his hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Again I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, I don't, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Father God, we thank you for the incredible gift of your word. Would you come by your spirit and would you speak to us tonight? Amen. Amen. How many of you on first reading of that passage completely understand every bit of it? It's funny, isn't it? Did anyone recognize one of the verses in the midst of that? Verse 6, one of the most famous verses in the Bible that says, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And I wonder how many of you, I won't ask you to put your hands up, but if I said put your hands up, if you've ever kind of been prayed for and someone has had that word for you, or maybe you've been in a particularly difficult time and you've come across that word and it's really encouraged you, I bet quite a lot of hands would go up 
around the room. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And there's an amazing encouragement about that because there's kind of this sense of God saying to us, it's not your strength that's going to do it. Rely on me. Rely on my spirit. Rely on my might, on my power. And I will do it in you. So it's a great encouragement, isn't it? And I think it's a really good one for us and in our kind of day and age. You know the, the classic bit of sociological analysis that today we have more money than they've ever had before. We've, it's more convenient to get our food and all that stuff than we've ever had it before. It's an easier life than we've had it before. And yet it seems that compared to so many centuries gone by, we somehow <laughs> hurry more than people have before. We're somehow more stressed, more anxious. And mental health is a massive issue in a society that seems to have everything. And so there's pretty good advice there of it's not your strength. You don't have to do it. Don't just rely on yourself. Rely on the Lord. And it, you know, what do you do in response to that word? Well, hopefully you pray. That's a good idea. Hopefully you pause. Hopefully you realize the importance of what the Bible calls Sabbath which isn't just having a day off, but it is taking a day in your week that you give to God to focus on him, to enjoy him and those around you, and to rest. Now, those things are really, really good, and they're important. And some of us tonight need to hear that. You need to slow down. You need to pray. You need to rest, because it's not just on you. But you know what I love about the Bible? And what I love about God is that he is so much bigger and does so much more than just helpful advice for well-being in life. If you want good advice for well-being, well, you know, you can find that in plenty of books. Find a life coach, and they're helpful and useful and good. But there's something more going on here. The confusing thing is, the reason that we often pick out one verse on this chapter is because Zechariah, to be completely honest, is really weird. If you read through this book, it's like... Well, at this time of history, there are two prophets who are speaking to Israel. I'll explain a story in a moment. Haggai and Zechariah. And Haggai is great because he just makes sense. So he just comes to them and says, why are you building your own house instead of building the temple of the Lord? Build the temple. There you go. Thanks, Haggai. Got it. Zechariah comes and says, I saw four horsemen, and one was red and one was brown, and they were floating all around the world. Then I saw chariots. Then I saw a woman in a basket. And then I saw horns that popped out of the air. And then I saw, this one is all about, and then I saw this lampstand, and there were olive trees, and it was pouring out oil. Whoa! This is kind of for the creatives. Are there any creatives in the room tonight? Well, you prefer poetry than prose. Where if, one, if, you, you know, if you could say something in one word, then you're just not trying hard enough. Zechariah is confusing, but when you dig into it, you see that he's doing something absolutely incredible. And God is speaking something so much more than just chill out and trust. So this sermon comes in the midst of a series looking at restoration and looking at this period in the history of Israel that we don't often look at that much, the post-exilic period. So a lot of the Old Testament, we find God kind of forms the nation Israel from Abraham and the patriarchs and gets them into the promised land. And the idea is that this nation, with his temple at the middle, will worship him and honor him and his presence will be there. So they'll be like a light to all the nations. So that everyone in the whole world will see Israel and come back to God. That's the plan. 
But he said to them, if you're faithful and obey, then we can do that. But if you consistently rebel against me, I still need to show people that I'm real. And so there will be consequences to that. And the ultimate consequence will be that I'll move you out of the land and you're exiled from the land. And we have about 500 years of them in the promised land and God consistently sending prophets who are ignored. And then one of the final ones is Jeremiah and he prophesies to the people of Judah and he says, you are about to go into exile. The Babylonians are going to take you away. They're going to destroy Jerusalem, take you away over to, their, uh, to Babylon. And you will be there for 70 years. But then God is going to raise up a Persian king called Cyrus who will send you back to your land. Seventy years later, the book of Ezra begins. And Ezra and Nehemiah in the Bible are one book in the Hebrew Bible. And Ezra begins by saying, to fulfill the words that God spoke through Jeremiah, after 70 years, Cyrus, the Persian king, comes, defeats the Babylonian empire, and the Israelites get sent back to Jerusalem. Ezra and Nehemiah, are, they tell the period of about 100 years of history, of God through three different leaders, Zerubbabel, the bounciest man in the Bible, Ezra, and then Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, about 50 years after Zerubbabel, they rebuild Jerusalem. They start with a temple, and they build that. And then they, Ezra comes back and teaches the law and rebuilds the holiness of the community. And then Nehemiah comes back and builds the walls. And by the end of it, you seem to have uh, Jerusalem restored. It's an incredible period of history, and it's an incredible um, story to have in the Bible because uh, I don't know if you realize, and I'll talk to you about it afterwards if you like, but how um, kind of historically verifiable so much of the Bible is for us. This is uh, one of the most evidenced uh, ancient historical documents that we have. And right in the midst of this, you have prophecies that are written and then years later actually fulfilled. God doing exactly what he said he would do, a historical account. The testimony of God making a promise about something he would do 70 years later that involves empires changing that will affect a nation, and God fulfills it. And we have the historical documentation of it. I don't know about you, but that, that should encourage you and potentially even blow your mind a bit that this is the God that we serve. We've just been singing, you know, um, I can't remember words. I don't do well at remembering words of songs. I just shout my own things. But we've been singing that like, you make promises and you'll do it again, or whatever it was we were singing a moment ago. God is a covenant-keeping, promise-fulfilling God. And we have the historical evidence of it. But partway through the stories, Zerubbabel, they begin to build the temple right at the start, and they lay the foundation. They made it an altar and start worshipping, and then they lay the foundation and when they lay the foundation, some of them are really happy because they think, this is amazing, we're building it again. Some who remembered the old temple that was so much bigger and better, and also uh, how the cloud of God's presence came down, see the foundations, and they begin to weep. So you have this moment of kind of a mixed reaction to the foundations being laid. But then the next thing that happens is the people around begin to oppose them. And what they do is that they begin to uh, come and want to join in. They're told that you can't. And so they start bribing officials to get in the way. They start trying to kind of work the system to stop the Israelites being able to build. And they get so intimidated that Zerubbabel and the people stop. And they stop for something like 10 to 15 years until Haggai and Zechariah come and prophesy to them. So that's the historical context of this passage. In chapter 4, 
He says this, we're just going to work through it. So page 951, if you closed your Bibles, you won't be doing that again. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke up, uh, and I saw, here we go, I saw a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it. A lampstand, seven lamps. That's the menorah. This is a golden lampstand that is a symbol for the temple that's being rebuilt. With seven channels to the lamps. And there are two olive trees by it. One on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. And I asked him, what are these things? And he says, down here, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. So this is Zechariah speaking to them and saying, just as Haggai is saying, start building again. Zechariah comes and says, look, build, because God is saying, this temple is going to be completed. So Rubberball, who laid the foundation, is the one who will come and lay the capstone and shout, God bless it, God bless it. This mighty mountain of the whole Persian Empire that these opponents are trying to turn against you will be made low. Don't be intimidated. But it's not going to happen by your might or your power. It's not your political maneuvering. It's not your cunning. It's not your strength. But it's my spirit that will make this happen. This is a really specific word to a specific time, place, and context. And the incredible thing is this, that God says, when Zerubbabel puts the capstone on that temple to shouts of God bless it, God bless it, then you will know that I sent Zechariah. In other words, when this is fulfilled, then you will know that it is God who is speaking to you. The maker of heaven and earth is saying this. About four years after this word was spoken, you can read it in Ezra. Zerubbabel, who laid the foundation, puts the capstone up in the sixth year of Darius, the king of Persia, and they finish the temple. In other words, we've got another prophecy that's made and then fulfilled, historically recorded, which tells us that we need to pay attention that this is God who is speaking. But then just after this, he goes on and starts talking about the olive trees on the right and the left. So if you imagine this picture, you've got this menorah with a bowl in the middle. You've got these olive trees on right and left, and there's channels coming into it. So these olive trees are pouring oil, which represents the spirit, into the bowl of the menorah. This is an amazing image of actually God's presence and his spirit is unlimited. We'll be pouring into this temple, into this place. What he's calling you to rely on isn't limited. It's unlimited provision from him. But these olive trees are Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua, (coughs) the, the high priest. Now what you have to understand about Zechariah is not just he has weird pictures, but he orders his book in a really weird way <laughs> that isn't linear. So these two, uh, Zechariah begins by saying, um, the generation before you were unfaithful and kicked out the land. Now God is calling you to be faithful. And then he has eight dreams. And if you can get this without me being able to do my hand movements, dream number one pairs with dream number eight. Number two with number seven. Number three with number six. And number four with number five. And in each pair, you have a prophecy for the present 
and a prophecy for the future. Are you with me? Number one, peace is going to come. Number eight, like peace will come and it comes with the Persian Empire. Number eight, peace will come through the Messiah in the future. Number two, um, it speaks about the sin of Israel going after uh, other gods, relying on other nations. And then uh, number seven is the woman in a basket. And it's about not going for idolatry in the future. Number three <coughs> uh, speaks about the new Jerusalem being built. Jerusalem, the actual city, will be restored. And then number, what is it, number six says that there will be a new Jerusalem, which will be a messianic kingdom. The Messiah will come and set up a kingdom over all the earth in the future. Are you with me? In the middle, number four and five, are visions, first of the high priest and then of, the, of Zerubbabel. And they are the turning point of the whole thing, where it goes from the present to the future. So in other words, this, this vision that we're reading about is when Zechariah shifts from, here is a really specific word of what God's going to do right in the present, and look, he just fulfilled it, so you know that he's speaking. And it points to something later, where Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel, the governor representing the civil authority, um, they represent for us the messianic king who's coming, who's going to be both priest and king. Does this make sense? You didn't know you were going to school tonight, did you? So you're a little bit shell-shocked. I seem to start in a funny way, and now I'm teaching you. Go figure. But this is important. Because then you have chapter 6, which kind of sums up uh, with this vision of Joshua becoming priest and king, is an image of who? Of Jesus, who is to come. And then you have in the later chapters of Zechariah some of the most specific prophecies about the earthly life of Jesus that you find anywhere in the whole of the Bible. So you have the moment where it says, Behold, Jerusalem, your king is coming, riding on a donkey. What's that remind you of? Palm Sunday. It says, Behold, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Jesus on the cross. And it says, in a day I will take away the sins of my people. In other words, you have these kind of two levels of prophecy. The first one, right into that historical moment. You'll be in exile 70 years and then you'll come back. God did that. Start building the temple again. Because even though it looks like the whole empire is against you, I will make that mountain flat. And the same person who started it will finish fulfilled. Then the Messiah will come. He will ride into Jerusalem uh, as your king on a donkey. He will be pierced and you will be forgiven. Fulfilled? Yes. Not in the hundred years of Ezra and Nehemiah, not in the time of Zechariah, but we know that that has been fulfilled. God has done that too, even hundreds of years later. But guess what? In this prophecy, there is speaking, there's three levels of what God is going to do. The present for Zerubbabel and his gang, and then the time of Jesus, and then something even more future, where he says, a time is coming where this new Jerusalem that I will build, which, which represents the people of God, will be a light in the world that will draw all the nations to it, and I will make streams like living water that will flow out of Jerusalem and bring life to every place, because my presence will be in the new Jerusalem. Do you know who the new Jerusalem are? It's you and it's me. 
the God who has fulfilled the promises, what was it, about a thousand years ago, of rebuilding the temple and all of that for Zerubbabel. It's the same God who made and then fulfilled promises 500 or so years later in Jesus and made promises that he is fulfilling right now in part and will fulfill completely in the future. Those promises are that he is going to to build this temple, this new Jerusalem, which we find out in the New Testament, won't be built with bricks and mortar, but with the living stones of people who have given their lives to Jesus. And through the church, through the body of Christ, through that temple, he will pour out his spirit. Why? So that these people will become a light for every person in the world to come back to God. So that these, person, these people will be like a source of living water that will bring life into every part of society and every part of the world. This is what God wants to do through you and me. Now I don't know if that seemed too teachy for you, but the Bible amazes me. Because if you just take that one verse, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, then what you do is you come, or I come in my hurried, stressful state, and I say, oh God, I choose to rely on you so you can help me to live my life better. And that is so nearly there. (laughs) What this is actually calling us to do, this is God speaking to us, saying, listen, I don't want you to rely on me just so you can live your life better. I want you to lift your eyes up and see that I am doing something so much bigger so much more than you realize right now. And I want to do it through you. I don't want you to rely on me to live your life. I want you to yield to me. Surrender to me. I want you to give me your life so that I can do something so much more than you can do on your own. And that's why I love that this is also the passage that says, essentially, don't despise the day of small things. Did you catch it? Verse 10. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Lovely, bizarre image again. The seven eyes of the Lord. That's uh, God seeing with perfection. The one who sees a completion. This is saying in that context, don't despise. Those of you who saw those foundations, I thought this is so small. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. Because God who sees everything, all of eternity right now, that God looks and will rejoice when he sees the rubble ball put the capstone back. Why? Because God knows that in the fulfillment of that promise, at that time, that specific little motion of rebuilding that one temple that wasn't even a shadow of the temple that was before it, in one time in history, 
that God sees it and rejoices because he knows. He knows what he is going to do. He knows that he is sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. He knows that he is calling his people home, not just from one small nation in the Middle East, but every tribe and every tongue, every nation. He knows that he is not just setting up an old sacrificial system with animals, but that his son is coming to die in our place, that there is no sin that is beyond forgiveness. There's no shame that needs to cling to anyone. There's no accusation the enemy can bring. There's no condemnation that might have been spoken over you that can hold you back. There's nothing that God cannot forgive and will not forgive. There's nothing he can't heal. He knows that God knows in that moment, he knew it. I'm calling my people back. And guess what? When we read, when we read the Bible, it's not like reading Aesop's fables where there's a lovely moral behind the story. It's not like that. When we read the Bible, we read our family history. We read the history of those who have gone before us, and we read the story of what God, who we serve and worship tonight, has done and is doing and will do. When we read the Bible, it defines who we are and what we're alive for. And I really believe that tonight, one of the things I felt God saying when I was praying about tonight is he's wanting to speak over us that there is more. There is so much more. And do you know the interesting thing? Is that it, all, it doesn't always look like much when you begin. In the middle of the worship tonight, I went and stood at the back and I was just looking out and praying over all of you beautiful and wonderful people. And I felt like one thing God was saying is that there are people in this room who <clears throat> have either just started or you've just had an idea or kind of a, a sense, maybe even a slight urge to do something that feels small. Maybe it's in your workplace. This is one I felt earlier today. There might be some people in your workplace and, and maybe there's like a, maybe there's a deep burden in your heart for the people that you work with. But you know what? It might not be that intense. It might just be that in the last weeks, at some point, you went into your workplace and thought, I wonder what would happen if we prayed here. Or maybe you just wondered, I wonder if there's any more Christians in this place. Or you just started to think, oh, shit, I really love my colleagues. Something really simple, really small. But I feel like on those things, God tonight is asking, will you yield those things to me? And do something about them. Will you take a step on that thought? Because from the small things, I want to do something so much more than you might realize right now. Maybe if that was you, it means that on Monday morning when you're going to work, maybe you find the all staff email. Maybe you need to get permission for this, I don't know. And you shoot something out there. Maybe you're saying, I'm a Christian. I'm going to come in half an hour early tomorrow and pray. Does anyone want to pray with me? <gasps> Maybe it's something as simple as that. Maybe it's inviting your neighbors round. Maybe it's something with your family. I don't know what it is, but I just sense what God is wanting to speak tonight isn't actually just 
Chill out and rely on me. Do you know what? That is good advice. If you are stressed and rushing around too much, you probably should know anyway. Have a rest. Have a break. We know that. Hollywood teaches us that. You can get that from Netflix. That will give you that moral. And it's true. But there's something more for the people of God. Which is God saying, will you take even the little urges, the little inklings, the little thoughts, and will you yield yourself to me, give them to me, and take a step? Because you know that dependency on the Holy Spirit is not passivity. It's right activity. It's shaping the things that you do around the things that really matter, trusting that God will do more through you when you do than if you chase after all these other things. The other thing I really felt for tonight is that there's some of us who have been carrying around this sense of, oh yeah, God does amazing things through them, but not through me. And maybe you feel disqualified because you tried one time and then you messed it up. Maybe you just feel not good enough because people have told you again and again in no uncertain terms that you're not good enough. Maybe you have genuinely made a massive mess of your life. Or maybe you've just done little things. I really believe that tonight God wants to break that shame, that kind of accusation, that disqualification of people tonight. Do you want to know when uh, Martin said, let's just start praising God for times of his faithfulness? I love that. And I started speaking out, thank you, God, Thank you, God, that when I went through clinical depression because my friend died suddenly at 15, that, Lord, you walk with me through that and drew me out of it. Thank you, God, that when I was addicted to pornography and it was destroying some of my relationships, that, God, you challenged me and you freed me from that. Thank you, God, that when my dad had a nervous breakdown and we had no money coming in, literally no money for three months, that you provided through checks under the door and food on the doorstep. Thank you, God, that when we had no place to live, but we knew that you were calling us to stay in Loughton, but we had no money to buy a house, and praise God that housing is cheap in that town, (laughs) that God somehow you miraculously provided, and we were able to actually buy a place. It blows your mind, doesn't it? This is our God. This is our God. Faithful. Loving, kind, incredibly good, infinitely powerful, true to his word, and longing to call his children home through me and through you. So the question tonight isn't, will you chill out this week? The question tonight is, are you willing to yield to the God who made you And say, God, whatever it looks like, wherever you take me, I'm going to give everything I am to you. Even if it's not a dramatic thing that you ask me to do, I will even do the small thing. Because if we're honest, sometimes we'd rather the dramatic call. Call me to a small island where no one's ever taken the gospel before, and I'll sell everything and go, Jesus. Write it in the sky and I'm gone. Because I can't ignore that. Cross the office 
to my colleague. <laughs> Ask them how they're doing and see if I can pray for them. Not on your life. I'm going to go off on my lunch break and pray somewhere holy. Are we willing to yield tonight?